Amen. Amen. Let's bow and pray together. Lord, as we come before you this morning, we come in awe of your glory and your faithfulness. We come to give praise to you for who you are and and what you are in your essence, that you are holy and glorious and majestic and worthy of our praise. But we also come to praise you today for your faithfulness, your work of grace throughout the ages, the God who makes and keeps promises, the God who saves sinners, the God who sent his son in love to shed his blood so that we could be cleansed and brought near and seated at your table. Lord, I pray that you would stir our hearts and our imaginations this morning with these truths from your word, that you would capture our hearts, that our desires and our affections would be directed towards you. Lord, we are people who are often distracted, a people who face suffering and trials. But I pray that you would convince us this morning more than ever before that nothing compares with the greatness of knowing you. So, Lord, fix our gaze on you this morning as we look into your word. We pray for your help. We pray for the work of your spirit to illuminate your word, to strengthen our faith in believing it, and to enable us to obey. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. This morning's text will be Exodus chapter 24, starting in verse 12, and we're going to be working through chapter 25 in verse 9. So you can turn there this morning. I'm sure many of you have had an experience at one point in your life that maybe you could describe as a mountaintop experience. Uh, Maybe it was your wedding day. Maybe it was a certain trip or a vacation. I'm hoping to take my kids, Lord willing, in in the next month to see the Grand Canyon. And we're going to stand there with our toes hanging over the edge, probably spit into the abyss, throw rocks, that kind of stuff. And just be amazed by seeing something that is that magnificent. Um, Maybe you've had a mountaintop experience that was accomplishing a specific goal. Maybe graduating or getting out of debt or some of you have built a house or done things like that. There's these moments we have in our lives where there's this mountaintop experience where everything seems right in the world and we're filled with joy and gratitude, amazement, wonder, whatever it may be. And if you're like me, you wish that you could sort of freeze that moment in time. You wish that you could take it with you and that it didn't have to end. Well, Moses and the elders of Israel here in Exodus 24 had literally just had a mountaintop experience. God had invited Moses and some of the leaders of Israel up onto the mountain. After ratifying the covenant, after the the special sacrifice and the blood is put on the people and on the altar, God invited them to draw near, and they saw God. Verse 11 in chapter 24 tells us this startling scene that they beheld God and ate and drank. This experience was a glorious moment. It was, I'm sure, one that they would never forget. But it raises the question, so where do they go from here? I mean, how do you follow that up? What's next for Moses and the children of Israel? Well, now that God has entered into this covenant with his people, and he has welcomed them into his presence, over the next six chapters, he's going to give them some very important instructions, some very key directions that will allow his divine presence to go with them on their journey. 
the experience on Mount Sinai was not meant to be a one-time event. They were literally going to be able to take this moment with them, every step of their journey to the promised land. Let's go ahead and read through our text this morning, Exodus chapter 24, beginning in verse 12. The Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine twisted linen, goat's hair, tanned ram's skins, goat's skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastpiece. And let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. The next six chapters in the book of Exodus have to do with the tabernacle. Detailed instructions for, for the structure itself. Detailed instructions for the furnishings and the implements that will be used in the tabernacle. And detailed instructions even for the priests and their clothing and how they are to serve in the tabernacle. The God who welcomed Moses, the God who welcomed those elders with Moses into his presence on Mount Sinai, it becomes very clear that he intends to dwell with his people. He intends to be among them. Exodus 24, 12 through 18, sort of the first half of this passage that we read, tells us sort of the narrative setting that God invites Moses up on the mountain. He invites Moses to come into his immediate presence. And he tells Moses, wait there. And Moses understands that this means he's going to be there a while. I mean, he had to wait six days before he could fully enter into God's presence. And then we learn that he's, it's going to be 40 days and 40 nights till he actually comes back down. And so he communicates that to the elders. We see that in verse 14. He says, listen, if there's any business that needs to be handled, you guys take care of it. Because I'm supposed to be talking with God, meeting with God, and I'm, I'm not going to be available. And in fact, he does end up being there, as we said, 40 days, 40 nights. And there on the mountain, we see that the presence of God is manifested. There's repeated words throughout these verses. Anytime you're studying the Bible, when you see these words being repeated, that's important. We see the word mountain listed eight times just in these few verses. Verse 12, 
uh, through the end of chapter 24, verse 12 through 18. The mountain is the holy place. It's made sacred by God's presence. It's called the mountain of God. And the fiery glory of the Lord, we're told, dwells there, just as Israel dwells in tents. We see the word glory and the word fire three times sort of clustered together. This glory is wrapped also in a cloud. It's shielded from view. The the cloud is almost like a curtain, as it were, separating holy God from sinful man, keeping man from being able to fully see into the presence of God. And Moses is invited to go into the cloud, to go after six days behind the curtain, as it were, to the very presence of God. Sinai had been the scene, as we've, as we've noticed, for the giving of the law. It's been the place where the covenant was ratified. It's the place where Moses and the elders saw God. And this might raise the question for us, and even as we see what's happening here with Moses going up to the top, is this God's dwelling place? Is God going to remain at Sinai when the people of Israel continue their journey into the promised land? Will they be leaving God behind them? No. God's promise is that he will be with them. His desire is to be worshipped by them and to dwell in their midst. So he gives them these detailed instructions to build the tabernacle, the holy place where God's glory will dwell behind a curtain that separates sinful man from holy God. It's a dwelling place that will shield their eyes from the fiery holiness of his glory, but will allow him to be in their midst. So God invites Moses up on the mountain to give him crucial instructions, instructions that will, as we said, take about six chapters in Exodus to lay out. And Moses will be there for 40 days and 40 nights, learning about the tabernacle structure, the furniture, the priests, all of it. And today I want to simply examine the theological theological significance of the tabernacle itself, to consider its meaning, and, and to try to understand what it is that the very existence of the tabernacle teaches us about the gracious purposes of God and the way in which he draws near to his people. So three things I'd like to pull out this morning, and the first is this. The tabernacle shows us one of the blessings of the covenant that God intends to dwell with his people. That is a covenant blessing, something made possible by this gracious arrangement that God has made with his people, marked by the shedding of blood, that's dependent on God's initiative and his purposes and his promises. It's a blessing of the covenant that God intends to dwell with his people. As you all know, Israel is not destined to live at the foot of Mount Sinai. They're destined for the promised land. This is what God had promised to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. It's a promise that he had repeated to this generation, telling them that he's going to go with them and be with them as they go into the promised land. They will not go alone. The God they met at Sinai would go with them, and that would make all the difference. The fact that God would go with them made all the difference. From ancient times, the covenant promises have always been sustained by the presence of God. God was with Abraham, their father. He was with Abraham to bless him, to protect him, to provide for him. God was with Isaac, Abraham's son. In Genesis 26, verse 3, God tells Isaac, sojourn in this land and I will be with you and I will bless you. 
For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. God was with Abraham. He was with Isaac. He was also with Jacob in, in Genesis 28, 15. God says to Jacob, behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. God was also with Joseph in the land of Egypt. Three different times in Genesis 39, it says that the Lord was with Joseph. In the book of Exodus, we see that God had been with Moses. In Exodus chapter 3, Moses meets God on this mountain. He beholds the manifestation of his glory in the burning bush in a holy place where he has to take his shoes off. God tells Moses, I want you to go back and tell Pharaoh to let my people go that they may serve me. Moses says, who am I that I should go and say this to Pharaoh? God says, I will be with you. God has been with Israel's ancestors God has been with Israel's leader throughout the Exodus. And now God reveals his plans to do the same for this nation. He would be with them as well. There's three words I want to draw your attention to in verses 8 and 9 that show us exactly how God intended to be with them. He says that they are to build him a sanctuary. A sanctuary. This is verses 8 and 9 of chapter 25. He says, let them make me a sanctuary. Sanctuary, in our modern usage, typically has this idea of a place of safety. You know, we think of sanctuary cities where someone can go to escape some sort of unwanted experience. Um, or, or maybe we think of our homes being a sanctuary from work and from the world and all these things. So we think of sanctuary as a place of refuge and safety. But the word itself really has the idea of holiness, a place that is set apart, a place that is sacred, a place that has been sanctified. And what makes this sanctuary holy is God's presence. Just like the ground that surrounded the burning bush was holy, just like Mount Sinai was made holy by the glory of God, so too the structure that Israel is supposed to build is not holy because it's made out of certain kinds of goat skins and certain colors of cloth and it has gold and silver and bronze. That's not what makes it holy. It's because God is going to be there that will make this structure holy. It will be a sanctuary. Verse 8 tells us that the purpose of the sanctuary is that God may dwell in their midst. Let them make me a sanctuary. Why? So that I may dwell in their midst. The glory of God, according to verse 16 of the previous chapter, chapter 24, the glory of the Lord dwelt on the mountain. God tells Moses, have them make me a sanctuary so that I may dwell no longer just on the mountain, so that I may dwell in their midst. This indicates not just a, an, an appearance to the people of Israel, but that God's presence would be sustained, dwelling in an ongoing sense, day after day, month after month, year after year, that he would remain with them, that he would share in their life, that he would be part of their travels, going where they go. They were bound together by this covenant, and God intends to dwell with them. So the, the nature of this structure would be that it is holy. It's a sanctuary. The purpose of it is a dwelling place for God. The structure is called, in verse 9, a tabernacle. 
He says, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all of its furniture, so you shall make it. Tabernacle is not a word we use, but basically this is simply the word for tent. It means a tent. Israel at this point lived in tents. They are a nomadic people. They are en route from the land of Egypt to the promised land. And God is going to enter into their experience. He's going to travel with them. God, as one commentator sort of cautiously put it, is going camping. He's going to live in a tent with his people. It would be a special tent, a portable temple of sorts. It would be a miniature of Sinai, a holy place where the glory of God dwelt that was shielded from view by this cloud. But it was still a tent. It's a tent. And this amazing instruction of Moses shows us that God is not stuck on Mount Sinai. And while they were not to go up on the mountain where God was, God had plans to come down to where they were. And they couldn't stay at Sinai. So God planned for the glory of Sinai to go with them. In Exodus chapter 29, in the midst of of God's instructions to Moses about the tabernacle and the priests and the implements, he says this in Exodus 29, 45. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. This verse is amazing. It tells us that this is not just some like, oh, since we're here, I may as well go camping with you. No, this is why God brought them out of slavery. God redeemed them. It tells us this in, verse, in, in chapter 29. He brought them out of the land of Egypt that he might dwell among them. This is God's intention, that he would be their God, that they would be his people, and that he would not be some distant God, but rather he would dwell with them in their midst. What had been lost in Eden, God dwelling with man, was being restored to a certain degree by these instructions to build the tabernacle. The tabernacle, therefore, is a testimony to the faithfulness of God, It's a testimony to his gracious purposes, that he's working out his goodness and grace for the people that he loves, the people that he has chosen, the people that he has redeemed. So rather than see all these building instructions as just some sort of tedious burden, you know, maybe you've read it that way as this laundry list um, of all the different specs for the temple. When we read about the tabernacle, it ought to strike us the, the radical good news that they were receiving from God on the mountain. That the God who saved them intended to dwell with them, to be in their midst, to be among them. So this is a profound blessing of the covenant that God intends to dwell with his people. But there's a second sort of principle I want to pull out this morning, and that's to consider the provision that comes through the covenant. That God makes a way for his people to enjoy his presence. That's what the tabernacle is. It is God making a way for his people to be in his presence. It's God accommodating himself to who they are and where they live. And all of this is God's doing. It's all God's doing. The tabernacle shows us that it's not man's ideas that made this possible. It's not Moses' efforts that, that allowed God to dwell with man. It's not man's accomplishments that make it possible for fellowship with the holy God. 
consider that the way in which this covenant is structured includes God's provision for everything. God is the one who gives this blessing. Think about it. God provides these instructions to Moses. He gives them this very detailed pattern. He says, pay attention to this pattern in verse 9 of chapter 25. We can get lost in some of the details. Details, details, details. But consider the details are grace. This is God's provision saying, I'm going to show you exactly what you need to do. They don't have to guess as to what would please God or what would make it possible for God to dwell with them. So God provides the instructions. Secondly, God provides the materials. We read through this listing of materials in verses 2 through 7. The gold, the silver, the bronze, the different types of cloth and leather and the acacia wood and spices and oils and all these different things. And you say, you're saying God provides the provisions, but when I'm reading it, in verse 2, it says, tell the people to take a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. This looks like a free will offering by the people. It's their donations. It's their offerings. It's their personal sacrifice that will provide all of the materials for the tabernacle. So why are you saying God provides the materials? Well, I want you to sort of remember the story of Exodus. This was a slave people. This was a people who worked sunup to sundown making bricks. How would they have all of these valuables? If you remember, when the 10th plague fell and the firstborn died in Egypt... And the Passover was celebrated. The people strapped on their sandals. They took their dough, which didn't even have time to rise. And they left Egypt. And as they left, it says their neighbors gave them riches and wealth and supplies. They plundered the Egyptians. What was that about? That was God providing for them everything that they would need for their journey. As a people who had formerly been impoverished and enslaved. But it was also God providing for them exactly what they would need in order to build the tabernacle. Everything that God requires from his people, he supplies. It was true for them. It's true for us today. What God requires from us, he provides for us. What they would give to God for the building of the tabernacle was nothing more than what God had already given to them. It was God's providential provision that had prepared them for this moment. So God provides the instructions. God has already provided the materials for the tabernacle. Notice that God also will provide the artists and the experts. If you flip over to chapter 31, we see this in chapter 31, verse 1. The Lord says to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting and in carving wood, to work in every craft. And behold, I have appointed with him Ohiliab, the son of Ahisamach, of the tribe of Dan. And I've given to all able men ability that they may make all that I have commanded you. God provides the instructions, God provides the materials, and God even provides the specialists, the experts, and he puts his spirit in them, gives them talent and ability so that they can produce exactly what it is 
that God is requiring from his people. God calls them to this task, and God also equips them for it. You see, when God has plans for his people, he always enables his servants to fulfill his will. So as we think about this idea of the tabernacle, we see that this is God's provision for his people. Gives them the details, he gives them the materials, he gives them the experts. But also think about this aspect of God's provision. God is providing, through the tabernacle, gracious accommodation for sin. Remember, when they first arrived at Mount Sinai, they were warned not to touch the mountain. They were warned not to come close and break through to try to see God. Moses and the others who did eventually go up on the mountain were only able to come there once the blood of the covenant had been applied. And now, what will this mean for the future? Well, if God's presence is going to be manifested in the midst of his people, there has to be a way to deal with their sinfulness. There has to be a way to deal with their uncleanness. The tabernacle would include gracious provisions that would make it possible for holy God to dwell among sinful people. As we study next week, the the way the structure of the tabernacle is even put together, there's boundaries in place. There's courtyards, there's curtains, there's limitations, but that's actually gracious. It allows a holy God to be in the midst of the sinful people without consuming them. It allows sinful people to draw near to God without being consumed. In addition to the separations, the tabernacle will also include the provision of sacrifices. There's going to be an altar. There's going to be sacrifices. There's going to be offerings that, that, that make a way for sin to be atoned for. There's going to be water for cleansing, ritual washings. God is providing through the tabernacle accommodations for a sinful people so that he can continue to dwell in their midst. And God is going to provide for them as well mediators, priests who would enter into the tabernacle on behalf of the people to represent them to God and offer sacrifices on their behalf. The tabernacle shows us that God is making provision for sinful people to make it possible for him to dwell with them. So when you read through six chapters of tabernacle blueprints, you have to remember that this is God's gracious covenant provision for his people, making it possible for them to enjoy his presence. That's what grace is. It's God making a way when we could not, if we were left to ourselves, allowing us to experience something far greater than we ever could if he did not first draw near to us and provide everything that is needed to deal with our sin. So God intends to dwell with his people. And so in order to make this possible, he provides a way. He provides a means through the tabernacle. But third... The tabernacle also shows us not just the blessings of the covenant and the provisions of that covenant at Sinai, but it also also is a picture of how God works in redemption. It's a picture of the covenant. The tabernacle points us to a greater glory. It points us to a greater glory. We've said it a hundred times today, but I'm going to keep repeating it because it's the point of the tabernacle, that God's gracious purpose is to dwell with his people, and that is a blessing. And in Old Testament Israel, this takes a particular shape. It's fulfilled in the construction of the tabernacle and later in the more permanent structure of the temple. 
but the tabernacle and the temple that would follow it, which was modeled after it, those were temporary arrangements. And the tabernacle and the temple were meant to point ahead. They're meant to portray something greater that is to come. Because God still intends to dwell with his people. And the people he intends to dwell with is bigger, larger, more numerous than simply the nation Israel. This points us ahead ultimately to the coming of Jesus. In John chapter 1, we find this amazing statement that if you know your Old Testament, you know about the tabernacle, you know about the covenants, you know about God's purposes, then it jumps off the page. It says that the word became flesh and did what? Dwelt among us. Jesus literally tabernacled among us. In the incarnation of Christ, God came down to dwell among his people, to live in a tent like us. He put on flesh, a tent of human flesh. And scripture tells us that through this tent, that is his body, Hebrews uses this language, that he made a way for sinful man to be redeemed. He opened a way for us to come into the presence of God. The tabernacle and the worship that took place there, the the priests who served there, the the altars and, and, and the other aspects of the furniture in the temple, all of it is meant to point us ahead to a greater glory, to a more final and lasting way for God to dwell with man. It points us ahead to Jesus Christ. You know, there's a reason that on the mountain of transfiguration, when when Christ went up and, and he took Peter, James, and John with them, and they saw his glory unveiled, there's a reason why Peter, kind of fumbling over words, trying to figure out what to say, he said, let's make three tents. And when we read that story, we go, what in the world? Why would you say that? I think Peter actually had a clue. He recognized that they are on a mountain, and they're beholding the glory of God, and he says, this is just like what happened at Sinai. And he goes, oh, oh, I know this story. I know what happens next. We're supposed to make tabernacles next so that this moment can be frozen in time, so that we can take this with us, so that this isn't lost. And Peter's idea, while well-meaning, was not God's plan. And so Jesus gives him some other instructions. But Peter wasn't totally off base. He actually recognized a little bit of what was going on, that Jesus is the glory of God and that he's come to dwell among us. Peter wanted to capture that moment and preserve it in time. That mountaintop experience for Peter was something that he would never recover from. He would never get over it. He he, he mentions it when he writes his epistles later in the New Testament. But God has a better plan than Peter building some tents. In John chapter 14, verse 1, Jesus says this, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. Get this. That where I am, there you may be also. Here's the amazing thing that God is doing through Christ. Rather than us building a place for him, think about this. He is building a place for us. 
so that we can dwell with him, so that where we are there, he may be also. That's our future. That's what we're going to experience. And it's all because of Christ. It's because of what Jesus is doing. That's what we have to look forward to. Jesus is preparing a place for us. And until that day comes when we're home, he has promised to be with us. In Matthew chapter 28, in giving the great commission to his disciples, he finishes it with this promise. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So we're not yet home. We're not yet seeing Christ face to face. We're not yet beholding his glory with an unveiled face as we will one day fully when we see him. But today his spirit is with us. Because of what Christ Jesus has done in shedding his blood, he has cleansed us from sin. He he has forgiven all who believe in the gospel. And he has given us the gracious gift of his spirit. The spirit of God dwells today, not in a tent made with hands, and not even just among his people. But today, God dwells in his people. The spirit of Christ is within us. The spirit of Christ dwells in all believers individually. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19 tells us this, that that each of us who belong to Christ, each of us who have been redeemed and made new, that our bodies are a temple for the Holy Spirit individually. He uses the same sort of metaphor in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, referring to the church as a whole, that collectively, corporately, the church is the temple of the Holy Spirit. 1 Peter 2.5 tells us that we are living stones that are being built together into a spiritual house for the Lord, that Christ, through his Spirit, dwells today in us. And the Spirit's presence today is a down payment, a guarantee and a foretaste of what is to come in the future. Our eternal destiny as the people of God in the new heaven and the new earth. Turn to Revelation 21. This is probably familiar, but it's just awesome to read it and to see it with your own eyes. The Apostle John, one who heard the teaching of Jesus, one who wrote that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, one who saw his glory at the Mount of Transfiguration, John sees a vision of how everything will come to a climactic end at the return of Christ. And at the end of this vision, chapter 21, verse 1, John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne. If it's loud, it must be important. If it's from the throne, it means it has authority. And this loud voice declares this, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them. As their God. The tabernacle, all these instructions for tents and tent poles and embroidery, carved wood, and the specific furniture that's there, it points us to a greater glory. The same God who drew near to his covenant people, Israel, and made these accommodations so that he could dwell with them. 
dealing with their sin, providing everything that was needed, and giving them this gracious blessing of the covenant. The same God is doing that same kind of thing today. And he's doing it through his son, through a newer and better covenant, one that is brought about through the death of Christ on the cross so that he can dwell with his people. Friends, if you know Christ, because Jesus came and put on flesh, because he died to bring about a new covenant, because of God's faithful promises and his gracious purposes, this is what we get to experience as a gift of God's grace. So when you read about the tabernacle, let it point you to that greater glory. In response to this, I want to encourage you just sort of three simple takeaways for us as Christians today, because we're not going to go from here and build a tabernacle. That's not how we obey this passage. So how do we as Christians reading about the tabernacle in the Old Testament, how should we respond to some of these truths that we see? Well, three things, very simply. Number one, recognize the gift. Recognize this gift that God would want to dwell with his people, the gift of God's presence. We tend to see the presence of God as sort of an impersonal reality far too often. We, we believe in this sort of generic omnipresence, and that's true, that God is everywhere. And the Psalms tell us this. There's nowhere you can go and escape from his presence. The highest mountain, the deepest sea, heaven and hell, no matter where you go, you can't escape God. So Sometimes we understand the presence of God in that broad, kind of omnipresent sense, and we forget that the presence of God with his people is not just some spatial reality that God is everywhere. It is a relational reality. It is personal, that God is personally with us as his people in a way that he is not with those who do not believe in him. He is with those who are redeemed and cleansed of sin in a way that he is not with those who walk in darkness, who walk as his enemies. He is with us in a relational sense. And we need to recognize the profound nature of this gift. That this is possible only because God has dealt with our sin through the sacrifice of his son. In the Old Testament, it was the covenant with its sacrificial restrictions that made it possible for God to dwell with them. For us, it's Christ. And so as we read through these instructions, we need to consider the gift it is that Christ would say to us, I am with you always to the end of the age. The gift it is that his spirit would dwell with us today. The gift it is that our destiny is to behold his glory and dwell in his presence. It is a gift. The presence of God is not simply this broad omnipresence. It is a personal reality. And we need to understand that. Our thinking needs to be shaped by that. We need to believe that truth. We need to understand that truth. Let scripture renew your mind today to think of the presence of God as a personal reality that is a gift of grace. So recognize the gift. And then number two, receive this gift. Receive the gift, and we do this by faith. In the Old Testament, Israel was called to trust God's word. What did it look like to trust God's word and believe him? It looked like building a tabernacle and following all of these instructions. They entered into this covenant with God voluntarily. They responded to his gracious initiation as he drew near to them and gave them the terms. 
we are called today, similarly, to trust God's word, which means we need to receive and respond to the terms that he's offering. And here's what God calls us to do today. He says, repent and believe in the gospel. It's Christ. He must be recognized as Lord. He must be trusted in as the only one who can cleanse us from sin, as the sufficient sacrifice. He must be believed. Friend, if you don't know God today, the very simple takeaway for you is that you need to believe in Christ. You need to receive this gift that he offers himself to you. He he desires to bring sinners into relationship with himself. And that requires that you repent of your sin and turn away from self and receive this gift of grace by faith. Trust in the finished work of Christ. That's how you respond to this gift. You receive it. You know, if Israel would have refused to obey those instructions... If they would have said, no, I'm keeping my gold and my silver and my goat skins, and I'm not building that tabernacle, they would have forfeited the blessing, the gift of the presence of God. And for those who reject Christ today, for those who say, no, Jesus is good for others, but I don't need that, or uh, maybe I'll do that another time, if you're rejecting Christ today, you are forfeiting this blessing. You're saying no to the only means, the only way to experience salvation. But those who humbly turn to Christ, those who trust in the gospel, if you will do that today, then the Bible says you will receive the Holy Spirit. And the Bible promises that one day you will dwell with God in eternity. So if you've not received this gift If you've not received God's grace in Christ, then today, today you must. Do not say no to this offer of grace. What about for those of us who have received this gift? Well, this leads us to a third response. Rejoice in it. Rejoice in this gift. This is a truth, friends, that calls for worship. Rejoice in the gift of the Spirit. Rejoice in the hope of glory that God will dwell with man and we will behold his face. Rejoice, Christian. Again, we're so familiar with the promise of God to be with us that we can so easily take this for granted. We can forget what it is that we possess in Christ. It's easy for us to think, yeah, sure, God is with us because he's everywhere and that's kind of his job, you know, is to be with people, to be with us, to help us. We start thinking of it like that. Instead, we need to realize that the gracious nature of this gift is that it's not automatic. It was purchased with the blood of Christ. It is a profound gift of grace. And it's because God decided in eternity past to pursue sinners and to overcome our sin and to reconcile us to himself. He loved the world so much, he sent his son so that whoever believes will not perish but have everlasting life. It's because of God's faithfulness to keep his promises throughout history, like we sang about this morning. It's because Jesus obeyed his father all the way to the cross. It's because Jesus rose from the dead. It's because of all of that that we can enjoy the gift of God's presence, that we can be brought near to him. And this is a precious gift, one that calls for the highest praise. One that calls for the deepest expression of gratitude that we can muster. And something that offers to us lasting joy 
If there's something robbing you of joy today, suffering, disappointment, trials, hardships, whatever it may be, you look out there at everything that's going on in the world, you look inside at everything that's going on in your own heart, in your own life, you can become overwhelmed, you can become crushed, you can despair. But when we look to Christ and we remember what it is that we have been given, that is the foundation for joy. I could just leave you with this exhortation from Psalm 37, verse 4. Delight yourself in the Lord. Delight yourself in the Lord. Pursue him. Rest in what he is for you. So often our joy is, is easily tethered to all the things that we want God to do for us, all the things we want God to give us, and we forget that he himself is the gift. He himself is our joy. So when you think about the tabernacle and this gift, Christian, delight yourself in the Lord. Rejoice in the gift. The covenant that God made at Sinai meant that he would dwell with his people, Israel, in the tabernacle. It was a gracious fulfillment of his promise to them. And it was a gracious provision for their need. And the covenant, the new covenant that God has made with us through Christ, that means that his spirit dwells with us today. We're destined for glory. And we will dwell with him forever in an eternal sanctuary. So let's recognize this gift of grace. Let's receive it and rest in it. And Christian, I hope that you will join me in rejoicing, rejoicing today in all that God has done for us. Let's pray together. Lord, we do come to you today amazed that you would desire to have a relationship with us. Though we are fallen and sinful, though we do not love you and obey you and worship you as we ought, you have made a way. You've provided your son. You offer forgiveness of sin. And you have pursued us not because there's something worthy or special in us, but because this is simply what pleases you. It brings you glory. It magnifies your grace and your mercy to save sinners. So, Lord, we offer you today worship and praise, gratitude and thanksgiving. And I ask, God, that today that you would increase our joy, that this church would be a church that is so enamored and, and excited about what it is that you have done in redeeming us, that no circumstances, no suffering, no setback would rob us of that joy. Lord, forgive us for the way in which we take it for granted. Forgive us for seeking joy in other, other lesser things. I ask God that you would help us today to fix our eyes on you, to behold your glory in the face of Christ, to rejoice in the indwelling power and presence of your spirit. Lord, transform us. Make us faithful worshipers. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.